The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You've probably heard of Fortnite. It's a game and more than a game, a cultural moment that swept in with all of the force of Pokemon Go and arguably more of the staying power. There's the game itself, but there are the dances, the addictions. Now, here's a twist. Fortnite has competition. Electronic Arts a month ago dropped Apex Legends, its own multiplayer team combat game, and it might be hotter than Fortnite. It has grown as much in a month as Fortnite did in four. Fortnite's developer is already copying features. So. What does this style of game uh, do that's so different from what came before? And how big is the money involved? How does it fit into the future of esports? Welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I'm John Ford of CNBC here at the NASDAQ market site overlooking Times Square. Later in the show, you're going to hear from Siena CEO Gary Smith. Hear our conversation about how he grew up in a small mining town, skipped college, but ended up becoming one of the longest tenured CEOs in the business. Don't miss that. But first, let's break down this gaming re revolution. Uh, joining me this week, Tim Clark, Global Editor-in-Chief and Brand Director at PC Gamer, Miranda Sanchez, Senior Editor at IGN Entertainment, and joining me a bit later, Rick Heitzman, uh, First Mark Founder and Partner, and Bruce Stein, Axiomatic co-founder and CEO. Um, first, though, Miranda, I, I want to really hone in on what makes Fortnite, Apex, this kind of battle royale era different from what we've seen in gaming before. How is it different, the way these games work? So with this, we always see some sort of multiplayer phenomenon kind of rise. Um, yesterday it was Overwatch with hero shooters, and now we have Battle Royales, which is kind of like this great evolution of multiplayer shooters. Um, and what I think is really big here is that these games are free. Like, you look at Fortnite, that's free, it's super available, you can play on phones, you can play on your Switch, you can play on Xbox, you can play on PC, and you can play with your friends across those platforms in certain capacities. Um, and Apex Legends has come in and said, hey, we are coming from a great studio that is great at developing shooters and has been paying attention to all these other battle royales that have come out and is implementing different assets that kind of improve on everything that's been established. Tim, um, where did this come from? <laughs> well, as the name suggests, Miranda mentioned uh, Battle Royale. It's, it's kind of, um, if you've seen the film The Hunger Games, it's actually a lot like a Japanese film, Battle Royale, where you have like 100 contestants dropped onto a map. Uh, the map then shrinks in size. Uh, if you're outside of the map, then you're killed off. And it's kind of survival of the fittest. You, you kind of rush around the map looking to pick up armor, items, the best weapons, and then pick off the other players until it's only one person left surviving, and then uh, you're the winner. So kind of like the global economy uh, in this decade. It's, it's a brutal yeah, <laughs> metaphor for capitalism in a lot of ways. Um, the, the, the thing that's interesting about the genre, one of the many things that's interesting about the genre is that what Fortnite did, in some ways, is what Apex is benefiting from, which is to create an audience which can now move between these games because they're very familiar with the, the mechanics and the tropes of them. Um, and one of the things that Apex did, um, again, as Miranda said, it came from a really storied studio in Respawn Entertainment. It, it brought with it a couple of really interesting innovations in terms of how you communicate with other players. You could look anywhere 
uh, on the screen and ping an item or an enemy, and it'll, it'll tell the people you're playing with, hey, there's a cool gun over there, or there's a dude hiding behind a tree, you should be right. wary of him. Um, and that meant you could, you could really easily interact with players without having to worry about actually like, using a microphone and potentially exposing yourself to the toxicity which sometimes comes with uh, online games. Right. It had another interesting mechanic, which is that you can uh, respawn your teammates kind of like the name of the developer, uh, when they died, which is something that Fortnite previously didn't do. Uh, so but they're working on that now, right? Well, they're bringing this stuff in pretty damn fast. Yeah, yeah because the funny thing is, like, because in, in, in other ways the genre you know, is, is fairly strict in terms of its rules, that if one game comes along with some, some very cool and smart innovations, the whole player base can jump ship. And as much as Fortnite seemed like it kind of exploded out of nowhere, there were games before Fortnite. Player Unknown's Battlegrounds was the phenomenon story before Fortnite. Yeah, but that's, but that's hemorrhaged player base to Fortnite. To and Fortnite. now the question is, what happens to Fortnite if Apex becomes the dominant exactly. player? And I wonder, Miranda, I mean, um, why didn't Pokemon Go work the same way? Because that was a phenomenon a couple years ago. People were using it just on phones. Is it something about the multi-platform approach of this generation of Battle Royale games, or, or what? Why do you think people didn't copy that augmented reality smartphone game, and, and that didn't seem to have this same sort of, I don't know, cult momentum? So I think my gut tells me with Pokemon Go in particular, kind of mimicking that sort of gameplay is very hard. AR development is, I think, a little bit harder to um, recreate in that kind of space and have something as notable as Pokemon to drive it. Um, and also with Pokemon Go, I think a lot of people kind of jumped ship after the original 150 were done, like the fanfare was over. People were very attached to those first few generations of Pokemon, which are kind of the first uh, big batches of updates. And then after everyone kind of caught the Pokemon they wanted and they liked, you kind of move on. Um, the thing with Fortnite and I think with Apex Legends, or has the potential to do, is that these games can be iterated on very quickly um, and improved over time. And that's kind of what we've been seeing with Fortnite and how it is kind of adapting things from Apex Legends, saying, hey, the community is really like these things, so we're going to pull this into our own game and do our own kind of style on it. And what's and beautiful from a business of, perspective is it doesn't require on, like, Nintendo or Disney intellectual property in order for the idea to work, right? Like, you, you can do this with, with fresh environments, fresh characters that don't have to be licensed from anyone else. Right, absolutely. They're kind of just working with their own material to the most part, for at least for Fortnite. Like, they're kind of infringing a little bit on those things, but that's a whole other topic. Um, but they can, like, see these trends and say, hey, we want to adapt this for our world and our characters. And I think uh, Apex Legends definitely has a little bit more of a narrative to it. Um, but these two companies are definitely working with their own properties that they don't have to answer to anyone else for. Tim, when Fortnite hit 50 million um, registered users, which is where Apex is now, it took Fortnite four months to get there. Apex has done it in one. When Fortnite hit 50 million, that's around the time when they launched smartphone, mobile. It's not clear when Apex is going to do it. How important do you think that is to the momentum of a game like this? Well, I mean, EA likes money, so I imagine it'll, <laughs> it'll come to tablet and smartphone and abacus and everything else eventually, I would have thought. Um, you have to assume that's in the game's future. But at the moment, I think, um, for EA, this is their kind of... It's, this was a big risk for them, right? This, these games are not inexpensive to make, although Miranda's absolutely right that one of the benefits is you can iterate on them, uh, them quickly. How do they do it so fast? Uh, because because the, 
if you think about traditional shooter games, you're, you're creating these kind of long narrative campaigns where like everything is bespoke. Whereas with this, they're making one map essentially. It's one. Uh, you know, still very detailed and gorgeous-looking three-dimensional area, but then they can just make changes to that map that completely refresh the experience. And, and the model for these games is like with Fortnite, you have a battle pass where you pay X dollars per month to receive, uh, you know, a bunch of challenges where you can earn the latest skins and other cosmetics. And it's 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 much more of a kind of a fixed target than than if you're releasing a new single-player game. You have to create all these high-definition assets for every single area you make, and it's kind of one and done. Once mm. people are finished with it, you know they'll try and add things to, to create replayability, but you move on. Games like Fortnite and Apex, and the other what what are kind of known as games as service in the industry, in the industry, are games where like having one game can be your entire hobby. Games are, gamers are becoming like less omnivorous and more focusing on one particular title, one particular brand, right. which which in a funny way actually puts them at higher risk because then if your game suddenly becomes un uncool, the whole player base can migrate and that's probably what's giving them, uh, you know, slightly sleepless nights at Epic, although yeah. they're, they're still like the number one game in town. Let's, you know, let's not pretend. It, it, it's funny, Miranda. Um, I, I don't let my kids uh, eight and 10 play Fortnite yet, but they are playing Splatoon mm. and, and there are some things, you know, the game with the okay. Nintendo Switch, it's kind of similar. I mean, it's team-based, you know, it's one group versus another, it's, it's online with some limited um, ability to so, not really communicate, but at least feel like you're a part of something. I mean, uh, does this have implications outside of even just these two games in, in the way that, that people are getting used to playing the sort of team-based online game? Yeah, of course. I mean, um, Tim brought up a really great point about the peeing system with Apex and how um, with online gaming, you're always looking for people to play with. Like, even when I was in high school, like, I was playing shooters online all the time with my friends. Like, we come home from school, the first thing you do is you get online, you're playing with your friends all summer, all day, you know, kind of thing every weekend. Um, and kind of going back to Tim's point, I think the communication we're seeing evolve in these video games is really interesting. Because um, you don't always get to play with your friends, right? Um, and you also want to have a kind of accessible space for all ages whenever you have these games. And having that ping system that Apex Legends has brought in, it makes a new way to communicate with people without having to have that added toxicity that comes from voice chat. Um, and kind of going to Splatoon also doesn't really have voice chat, which also makes it, I think, a better environment for people to get into. Um, and so one thing that I've been really interested in seeing is how these games kind of make that a little bit more accessible for all sorts of communities. Um, I see right now we have some League of Legends going on. That uh, doesn't necessarily have the most uh, friendly environment at all times. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, I think uh, having these team-based games just makes gaming just a little bit more special in a way. Um, of course, we love our stories told of us. Like, um, one of the best games of last year was God of War, which is an incredible narrative experience that you can't really play with anybody else. But at the end of the day, like, I, I want to hang out with my friends. I want to hang out with my family across the country, and the way I do that is through video games. So, um, yeah. yeah, multiplayer games have been such a big thing for such a long time, and uh, it's really interesting to see how the trends change um, every year. Well, once again, this is Fort Knox. We were talking about, well, Fortnite, Apex Legends, and this new revolution, really, in gaming around Battle Royale, some things around team-based play, free-to-play uh, with some upgrades. And joining us now from Los Angeles, Axiomatic co-founder and CEO Bruce Stein. He is also the director of eSports fame team Liquid, his firm and early investor in Niantic, the company behind the aforementioned Pokemon Go, and Epic Games, the brain behind Fortnite and a number of other titles. Uh, welcome. Uh, Bruce, so... 
How, how different is this latest wave in gaming from what we've seen in the past? Do you think it has a, a different staying power or, or um, a different amount of influence over how games are going to be made over the past, over the next uh, five years? I think you have to start looking at audiences, which is where we come from. We got excited about the gaming audience early on when we said, hey, there's 7.7 billion people on the planet and 2.2 billion are playing games. We like those kind of odds. <laughs> then when you look at the esports part, there's three to 400 million people playing esports. And you know, we have, a, we have one of the best, arguably one of the best, without any false modesty, um, teams with Team Liquid. And the esports audience is around three to 400 million, making it the third largest country in the world. So when you start with an audience that size, and the demographics of it are largely 18 to 49-year-old males um, that are educated, they have you know, money to spend, they have families, um, it's a different audience than you might suspect of a bunch of kids in their basement playing games. When Fortnite broke on the scene, they did something that was astonishing. They brought into the girls' world a game that they could participate in. And it, it, it became a third girls from the start. And it mm. became younger audiences. And as that audience expands, I think you find incremental gamers, not necessarily... I know it's interesting to talk about one game taking an audience from another, but I think we're gaining players that are finding this online community yeah. a wonderful place to socialize. That's There's, interesting. You know, I, I mean, I, I've seen numbers suggesting that um, Epic made, uh, what, $3 billion profit-wise um, in 2018 off of this game. Is that, is that right? And have you ever seen anything quite like that before? Well, I think you have to you know, get the numbers from Epic as far as what they're reporting. Um, they're phenomenally profitable, but they are a D their DNA is based on engineering and gaming. And when you were comparing it to Niantic, I thought it was, and Pokemon Go, I thought that was an interesting comparison because one of the similarities between what uh, Fortnite has and Epic has and what Niantic has, they both have proprietary gaming engines. Mm. Okay, so underneath their games, they have the Unreal Engine in Fortnite and the real world engine with Niantic. What that enables them to do is to continue to innovate based on audience needs. And when they see you know, audiences going one way or another, they see preferences, they can adapt in real time. And that's a real difference in what gaming used to be when you would just sell a disc and then it would be out there. You yeah. have a chance to really identify and satisfy specific consumer needs. And Niantic's got the Harry Potter game coming out, which uh, to me right. is exciting. I read all of those books to my kids, and it seems like something they could get into maybe even a bit more than Pokemon Go. Uh, Tim, I, I was frankly surprised to see how Fortnite became this thing based on console, PC, and phone. It seemed like, at least in some media circles, there had been this narrative developing that smartphones were where the future was and that you know games were getting more and more rich and more expensive on there and the money was gonna be made there. It seems that instead of smartphones alone being the future, it's like the model, the gaming model that started on the smartphone just exploded into all these other platforms too. 
Yeah, and this, I mean, it's interesting to note as well, there's still, like, a resistance amongst, like, in inverted hardcore gamers to the phones and tablets as a thing. Screens are small. Well, they, they, you know, they kind of sometimes see it as, like, a lesser experience encroaching on their more kind of complex and detailed games. But I'm sure we'll see those lines keep blurring. There was an amazing kind of moment at, at BlizzCon, the, um, the event Blizzard hosts every year, where they announced a new Diablo game, which everyone thought was going to be for the PC, and then it turned out it was for the phone, and they were pretty much booed at their own <laughs> conference. So it's still, it can still be kind of like a fraught space between the two. It's not Is always smooth sailing. Is it kind of like sailing. Spielberg versus Netflix in the sense of, like, how big a screen do you need to have the full experience, and should the Oscars be you know, accepting that is is a smartphone kind of like Netflix in that, and the PC kind of like a Spielberg cinematic blockbuster. I mean, I just bought a 65-inch OLED TV, and I'll probably plug my PC into that sometimes to play games. Sometimes <laughs> you might be asking uh, the, the the wrong person. Yeah, I think. Like, yes and no. Like, I think going back to Fortnite, there's, there's always been a craze in gaming, right? And especially, you know, with youth culture, there's always something that breaks out in this sort of way. Um, we'll see the sustainability of it. Pokemon was a, a, an interesting thing to mention because I think that did not flame out, but certainly, like, it had its moment. And then, we, you know, the mainstream kind of moves on to do other stuff. And right now, that's, that's you know, undoubtedly Fortnite. One of the things that's super interesting to me is, like, the money that Fortnite's generated is, has essentially paved the way for them to become their own effective platform holder and storefront now and take on Steam, who have mm. been the dominant platform uh, in PC gaming, certainly for a long time, owned by Valve in Seattle, where the vast majority of PC games are bought and sold. And Epic now, off the back of Fortnite, is, is challenging that. That's probably going to be the most significant battle, I think, of this year and something we've been writing about a lot on PC Gamer. Yeah, Bruce, another piece of this is the, the entertainment value for people who aren't even playing who are just watching. It used to be that was the, the, the worst position to be in if you were the one kid in the room who didn't actually have a controller, had to watch other people play. But, but now it seems like with eSports, there's this entirely new business being built on the idea, hey, you don't have to play the game. Just know who the players are, watch it, get entertainment out of that. How much of that is a, is a piece of what makes these games successful, the viewability? Yeah, I, I think there's something that we use as a thesis at Axiomatic that's worth considering, which is we look at games as a new media format. It's a culture change in what a generation expects from their content. They want to be able to interact with it. They want to be able to socialize there. They want a community. They want to be able to belong. And even games that now, well, we were talking about Pokemon Go and is it doing so well? And it still has 35 million people playing it as monthly active users. <laughs> yeah. I think for, for, from a network standpoint, would you be happy with 35 million viewers, you know, actively there? Yeah, and then say, would, well, it's yeah. not doing so well. <laughs> I wouldn't kick them out for eating crackers, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that when you start looking at the potential of gaming as a media format, and all of the ways that it can evolve to address different audiences, you can find that there is an ample audience for the pro esports as well as the games that are on a mobile platform. And Fortnite obviously went after cross-platforming, and it was a big part of their advantage. But for some people, the hardcore gamers that are playing League of Legends like our team, they're, they're not even in the TV business per se. They're in the computer business, which is where they center all their activity. And for them, the activity is always going to be about that content, watching other people play it. And the amount of engagement for those kind of fans, if you look at the hours viewed, is just unreal. Miranda, I want to get back to the money 
uh, for a moment because, interesting, I, I, the Wall Street Journal had a story, um, might have been today, yesterday, about Nintendo dealing with the developers who help with their games on smartphones, saying, you know what, we're not trying to make too much money. We don't want you to really crank up the algorithm in the sense that it forces people to want to pay more for a better experience. Could some of this free-to-play stuff go too far? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we've definitely seen free-to-play games that kind of take advantage of its users too much to kind of dangle an exclusive cherry that you really have to pay for. Um, I think that's a lot of concerns whenever we do see new free-to-play games come out. It's like, one, am I having to pay to win? Two, how much is this game giving me versus is it requiring me to give to it in order to get some sort of good experience? Um, and Nintendo's space in mobile games is a little bit weird since they kind of have been trying to push some new IPs, but also pull from old ones. Like they have their Mario game, they have their Animal Crossing game, which are very loved things within the Nintendo space. And I think there's always that little hesitation to see it's like, okay, so we're getting this for free, but what does this require from me? And uh, kind of go back to Tim's point about the hardcore gamers and not really accepting a kind of mobile games as a really authentic space for video games, or at least um, kind of like a top tier space for that. Um, I think there's always a hesitation there. And I guess seeing Nintendo's messaging about that is really curious because I think it's more the way I read it was, hey guys, please remember that we want this to be more of a balanced experience for what you put in um, isn't excessive, I guess you mm. could say. Because yeah. um, we've, we've definitely seen that with some of their games where it's, it's uh, definitely got that loot box feel. It's like, hey, you want this character, it's available for a limited time, but you have to buy this box to keep getting it. And you might not get it unless you spend so much money or you put so, many so much time in to unlock that. Um, so right. I could see them maybe being a little concerned about the quality there. Because um, Nintendo, first and foremost, is very much about the quality of their games. And um, I could see them maybe saying that a little bit more internally, so I'm very surprised that it came out externally for us to hear. Bruce, jump in here. What's your take? I'm sorry, I didn't hear all of her answer. Can uh, we, we were talking uh, about Nintendo's move to say to some of the developers who work with them on smartphone games, hey, don't crank up uh, the, the incentives so much that we end up squeezing too much money uh, out of the gamers here. I guess the implication being we don't want them to hate us or feel taken. Um, Free-to-play is definitely an advantage, and we've seen that in a number of esports, and it's something that obviously helped um, Fortnite in the Battle Royale mode. But look, video gaming's been around since, you know, the 60s, and it's taken different forms. And ultimately what it gets down to is, you know, the title. Uh, if the title and the gameplay work and it's free to play, you're going to see the kind of ramp up that you did see on Fortnite as well as on Apex. And if you have cross-platform access, it's going to obviously give you more points of entry than you used to be able to have before when you were stuck in yeah. front of a console. Yeah. Uh, spoken by a man who has seen uh, that potential early, Bruce. Thanks for being with us. Once again, this is Fort Knox. We are talking about this new trend in gaming, Battle Royale, Fortnite, Apex Legends, and just different incentives and ways to design games. Joining me now here at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square is Rick Heitzman, uh, first mark founder and partner and early investor in Pinterest, DraftKings, Airbnb, and Riot Games, the developer behind League of Legends. Uh, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me. What's your take on this 
battle royale age we've entered into. We started off talking about how Apex in just a month has racked up 50 million registered users kind of in the wake of Fortnite. Is this some fundamental shift that we've seen in gaming and, and what do you think it is? I think it's a fundamental shift. There's a couple different aspects that we've seen create this. First, that games have become social. I know you, you've talked about you're playing with your friends, you're playing with your family. I have a 14-year-old son. It's how he communicates with all of his friends. And they're on a Discord server talking about what game was playing, Ninja was doing what. So there's a social element to it. The barriers to entry have declined. So you don't need to convince your mom or convince your wife to buy you a console and put a disc in. It's free to play on the game in a minute. So anyone can get in, and that's where your friends are. And it's really taking away other media formats. You know, if you look at that 18 to 35 demographic, no one's watching broadcast TV from, 10 to, from 8 to 10 or 7 to 10 a.m. or p.m. <laughs> it's Twitch, it's YouTube, and it's gaming. And that's their media consumption. So are, are people designing games differently over the last 18 months because of this? And if so, how? I, I would say the arc is longer. It's probably been 10 years, but a lot of them are high-quality games that take a while to get out. I think the guys at, at Riot Games had it exactly right 10 years ago when they said the key, now that you have connected devices, and that could be a phone, it could be a, a PC, it could be a console, is that it's going to be social. And the most important element of a game is going to be no different than pick up basketball. It's going to be the social elements which make it fun. And whether that's a battle royale format, whether that's a MOBA, whether that's whatever format you have, you want to have it be highly competitive, highly social, and highly achievement oriented. So you could say no different than a pickup basketball or soccer game. I'm playing with my friends or against my friends. I'm getting my bragging rights. Tim, when the, when the history of this era of gaming is written, um, what are going to be the mile markers, kind of those, those touchstones? I mean, how important is League of Legends? How important is what, what Riot did? How important is Fortnite uh, and, and Apex? Yeah, and you go to like Counter-Strike as well, CSGO. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're talking about games as service as well, you would have to go back to the MMOs as well, like WoW and stuff, which brings that social aspect yes. in we've been talking about. But I think like... I mean, I, re I remember playing Marathon in college in right. between studying for finals. Uh, it, kind of I mean, games land, have always been social, but the technology is what enables yeah. it now. Like the mention of Discord, Twitch and YouTube. Like going back to what you were saying about are people designing for these, these mediums now? Absolutely, yes. That one of the fundamental reasons why Battle Royale is as, as successful as it is is because it's inherently spectatable. You know, the, the, the simple notion of 100 people being whittled down to one is why the film The Hunger Games is cool to watch, right? Because yeah. it's that in the, the drama and the tension inherent in it. And those platforms enable you to share uh, with your friends or just socially, like, amazing moments, like no-scope kills or, like, you clutching up, like, one guy against three and, and managing to win the round against all odds. <laughs> you know, those, those moments go viral, and they make careers for guys like Ninja and Dr. Disrespect and Real Crafty and that. They become heroes to these people because they're able to show the skill gap in these games as well. Going back to what, you know, the reference to pick up basketball and soccer, like, you know, you want to be, like, the equivalent of, the, you know, the, the Messi-type character or the Nala-type <laughs> character. And there are these guys for, guys for gaming who... Uh, are just, you know, monsters, right? They're consistently winning game after game after game, and people want to watch their highlight reels. 
Yeah. yeah, and I think they are, the games are also digestible. That you can jump yeah. in, you can watch your highlight reel, no different than Sports Center. Uh, here are the five best kills. You watch a whole arc, which is 20 minutes. It's not, you know, our old, you know, uh, discs in a computer. You're paying for eight hours or the infinite universe of a World of Warcraft. People's attention spans have shrunk. Video has made it more digestible. So it's really just finding the format that this it really hits the nail on the head with this generation. We're going to close us out here. Do you think Apex catches Fortnite, either in terms of just raw registered users or in terms of um, uh, engagement, you know, concurrent users, who, where the heat actually is? And what do you think will determine that one way or the other? Um, I think it certainly has potential. My biggest thing is I think we kind of have to wait, right? I mean, it's only been out for maybe a month. We still haven't seen its first battle pass or how they want to kind of move forward with monetization past um, the premium currency that you can buy. And I think it just comes down to that time and seeing how long that player base actually wants to stick around. Uh, I think that was one of the biggest surprises about Fortnite was how it not only was hugely popular after PUBG kind of set this precedent of like what a battle royale could be, but then just kept iterating and making it more and more exciting and kind of just keeping that momentum going. And I think that iteration was such a huge part. And the big question is, what does Respawn have to kind of keep matching that pace that Fortnite kind of established? Um, and I'm just super curious to see what they have to offer. Like they've already said that they're gonna have new characters coming, which is a different kind of thing that Fortnite doesn't necessarily have. Um, and also, of course, again, their battle pass. Um, Tim, in kind of a proud dad moment for me, I told my 10-year-old about Apex Legends. He didn't know. Now, wow. granted, he's never played he's never played Fortnite, but it's kind of like a cultural thing around his school in the fifth grade. Nobody was talking about Apex. I was like, Nathan, have you heard about Apex? It's, it's huge. It's like the next Fortnite. And, he, and dad was cool for me. So what do you think is going to happen here, Tim? Uh, I, I mean, I think the genre is undoubtedly here to stay. I think it's been it's been incredibly volatile and in flux. And I would I would you'd be crazy to bet against both Fortnite and Apex seeing continued success. I think like the point made earlier was correct. Like one game doesn't have to necessarily completely cannibalize and, and kill the other. There's probably room for there's probably room for two in the same way. That there's room for League and Dota two right in the MOBA space, but there's probably not room for five or six. So I think you know there's going to be a lot of people <laughs> trying to move in. Um, I expect at E3 you'll see still more Battle Royale games announced this year, but it would be a brave person, I think, to go against these two right now. Rick, what do you, what do you think? And, and which one of these games is better for eSports in its model? Uh, in its current model, I'd probably say they're equal. I, I think that there's enough influencers on Fortnite that you're going to have to pull people away. There's the first mover advantage. But I see games like Spellbreak, and you can look at the Discord servers when you see heat building for those games, especially going into GDC, and you probably look at uh, Spellbreak, and there's a the next version of folks who are going to pull around. But I think there's three games, and if you, you look at teenage consumption patterns, they're going to have their friends, they're going to follow Ninja, whatever game Ninja's playing, whatever they see is cool, whatever patch has the best, best new weapon. So there's room for a couple of different players that could be very, very large businesses. Do you think that this becomes the new draw at E3? Because it, it seems like a lot of companies are not doing, yeah. you know, the console makers aren't yes. doing E3 at the scale that they used to. Had me wondering, well, is E3 dead? But now, I mean, if, if Ninja shows up at E3, if there's a, a, a big battle royale thing happening there, maybe it's even bigger. What's well, how you define it? You know, how you define E3, E3 was, uh, for a lot of years, was an EA thing, right? Mm -hmm. So EA has all the footprint, has all the money in the world to make it about Apex and not make it about Madden, 
or uh, some of their legacy titles. There's no Red Dead coming, so it's, instead of the long arc Rockstar type games, you're going to see maybe more room for this um, the pickup game type Spellbreak or someone like that to push in, and you're going to see more smaller games with, with slightly different uh, formats, but in the Battle Royale style emerge in the next year. And maybe some dance competitions. Uh, dance Dance <laughs> Revolution, 2020 coming back. Like Fortnite edition. Miranda, thank you so much for being here with me. This has been Fort Knox, rich ideas, powerful people talking about this new wave in gaming. Up next on the podcast, Sienna's CEO. Gary Smith, CEO of Sienna. Thanks for sitting down for Fort Knox. I want to talk about the future of work. Um, you've been in this job for a while. Just think you've been at Siena since 1997, which in Silicon Valley time is like, you know, BC, right? <laughs> Before the crash. Before the crash. <laughs> and after the crash. Right. And beyond. Um, yeah. Which is amazing because, you know, you look at anything, stock charts, you know, which is like cave hieroglyphic. Crazy things happen then. So many uh, corporate leaders have passed through, uh, cycled out since then. What's your take, looking back all this time, on what that stage was all about? Well, listen, I think it's what you're living through is really the evolution of this digital revolution. Uh -huh. And, you know, how you can think about it sort of simply was sort of like the first coming of the Internet, uh -huh. you know, is how you look at the sort of early 2000s. We all thought that that was a model that was just going to continue to pervade and that trees grow to the sky and, you know, it was a whole brave new world. You know, and in some ways that, that's right. It's just taking a lot longer and business models needed to mature and technologies needed to be understood and platforms created. But, you know, that over-exuberance in the late 90s and 2000s was certainly, a, you know, a lesson for everybody. What was the sure. toughest time? Oh, well, 2001, 2002 for us. Right. For yeah. you. Oh, yeah. Not just, not just for Sienna, but for you. When, when sales go from over <coughs> a billion to 300-something million, just like, just like that? You know, I was a, I was a uh, newly minted CEO, right? So, uh, you know, for me, it was going from worrying about how to scale the business. You know, we had revenues of sort of 1.6 billion and we worried about how to kind of scale it. We were growing at crazy rates. Mm -hmm. Till the following year, you know, revenues, you say, were 300 million. And, you know, perhaps even more difficult around that is customers were just not buying. There was no view around whether it would ever return. I mean, no one knew. Right. Um, not only not buying, some of them were just going away. They were going away. <laughs> and so, you know, the whole market was sort of disappearing on you and you're saying, well, you know, what is going to happen? And then the uncertainty around that with no signals was really the, you know, there were a number of challenges, but that was perhaps the, you know, the most difficult because you had to kind of plan a strategy with very little data. Very little data. You could have cut back more than you did. Mm -hmm. Why didn't you? Well, our view was, you know, if we'd have cut the business back to be, you know, not losing much money, mm -hmm. uh, our view to it was that by, if anything ever came back in this market, we would have been so small and insignificant, it just wouldn't have been worth doing. So, you know, in many ways, the sort of contrarian view of investing in the downturn wasn't really anything other than the only option to us, quite frankly. Now, we were fortunate that we had enough cash to be able to go do that. Mm -hmm. 
And we're also fortunate that, you know, broadly speaking, the market began to come back in 04 and 05. But for a number of years there, it was just sort of an act of, an act of faith. Yeah. What's driving business and the hope of business now? How much of it is the cloud, 5G, explosion of data um, theme that, that seems to be so much what's happening in the enterprise and beyond? Well, you know, if you pull on the theme of sort of the first coming of the internet, and yeah. now we're, we're getting more mature around the business models, I think we've proven that. You provide a lot of capacity out there, and people will figure out the business models. Mm -hmm. um, I think what, you've, what we've gone through is this phase of just what I call connectivity. I mean, now you've got about 75% of the world is, is connected in some way, shape, or form on the internet, you know, mobile phones, etc. Mm -hmm. You've still got more connectivity to do, and basically, if you look at the usage model on that, it's just you know, cranking up the desire for capacity, you know, be it video, be it all kinds of consumption. Um, and so the demand for capacity is, is incredibly robust. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and in simple terms, people are looking for higher speeds, more capacity, closer to the customer. Right. Yeah. Um, I said I wanted to talk about the future of work, and I do, because a, a big theme these days, some people call it inequality, some people call it lack of mobility, just the idea that uh, unless you're born with a certain number of, of advantages, it's hard to get from point A to success. And I, I think it's interesting that you have, your story is a story of mobility in so many different fronts, uh, whether you're talking about countries, whether you're talking about socioeconomic levels, whether you and, and you've done it in non-traditional ways. So you grew up working class. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Yeah, I, I grew. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in Birmingham. You know, essentially, which is the sort of centre of the UK. Was uh, you know, coincidentally, the sort of centre of the the last industrial revolution that we had. I guess mm -hmm. by the time I was born there, that was certainly uh, in, in decline. You know, it was essentially a manufacturing type uh, environment. So that's where I grew up, and uh, both of my parents worked in worked in factories. Uh, what kind of factories? Uh, one was uh, car production. What used to be British Leyland, uh, you know, back in the day, my father worked there for for many years, and my mom worked in a uh, in a sweet factory. And so it's it's kind of for those in the U.S. sort of like the equivalent of the Midwest in a way, the industrial Very much Midwest, so. like a Very Detroit, so. Michigan, or you know, Illinois. And uh, you told a story about going on a career day trip when you were a kid. So the, uh, the, the career day, as I, as I recall it now, was on a, uh, an old bus, and we spent the morning in, in, a, um, in a coal mine, basically. It took us down a coal mine. Oh, it took you down into took a coal mine. Well, you know, we were, we were kids. Right, we were like right. 13, so 14, so, you know, we the got... We got the coal exactly. Yes, it would yeah. probably be a more accurate yeah. uh, recollection to it. And then in the afternoon, we went to what was really a, a steelworks, a smelting uh -huh. works. And... Um, I remember getting back on the bus and all my friends were excited about what they wanted to go do in either of these two. And I thought, boy, that looks like really hard work to me. <laughs> <laughs> this was meant to inspire you. This was meant to inspire. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I felt that, uh, hey, that, that looked like really, really hard work. What, what was your alternative that you saw at that point? I know you were into photography for a while. You went to London uh, yep. after, I guess, high school yep. and got into photography. W was that 
the the alternative that you saw at the time, or was it yes. more abstract? Yeah, no, I think it was just a notion that hey, you know, London is paved with gold, right? It was <laughs> sort of you know, uh, uh, I'd read and seen that that was the place to be, and sort of that, so that I was drawn there. Um, and I, you know, I loved photography. That was my sort of trade. How did that start uh, at the time? What was your first I, camera? It started very, very young. I was at an old Rolleiflex, an old two and a quarter square. I don't know how many folks will, will remember all of that, but I had a very old one and uh, in black and white film that I, that I processed. And that's how I sort of started and then um, worked for a local industrial photographer on big plate cameras. Hmm. And so that's... Local in Birmingham? No, lo local in, in where I was, yeah. And then I worked in London, uh, right. you know, in that. So I grew up through, through photography and then... Um, Taking pictures of what? You know, really, uh, at that time, it was commercial photography, so mainly buildings and things, but obviously did the ubiquitous weddings and whatever you had to do to, to, to earn a living. Um, but what became apparent to me was that, uh, you know, if you really wanted to earn a living without being one of the sort of top photographers in the world, you know, it was in sort of the more commercial world. And that's how I first got into sales and then was fortunate enough to really get into the start of the telecommunications industry you know, selling basically these old V29 modems, 2900 bowed modems that were, you know, like big pizzas. Mm -hmm. And that was really my first kind of uh, sales sales job. You said that the, the industrial piece didn't appeal to you because it seemed like a lot of work, but in another way, um, you were all about work. Mm -hmm. Learning that showing up is a, is a big piece of, of being successful. What, what motivated you at the time, um, was it problem solving? Was it uh, getting something more than than the table that seemed set for you? What what the expectation was uh, of a kid from where you were from? You know, I think it was all elements of that. But you know, as I look back on it now, I think the clearest memory was just absolute fear of failure. Hmm. You know, and it's not a terribly positive motivator in some <laughs> ways. You know, um, never works. But really, I, th I think that was it, you know, uh, was just the fear of, of not being successful in anything that you, that, that, that you did. So, you know, um, you had to work harder than you just turn up more than anybody else. And it's sort of a lesson that I learned earlier, you know, was basically you got to turn up, you got to work. And, and the more you do that, you know, even if you're not the smartest person in the world, you learn stuff if you do it. It's a sort of 10,000 hours type, you know, theory. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of truth to that generally, provided that, you know, you've got focused learning during the way with a purpose. And, you know, just keep turning up. Eventually you get reasonable at stuff, right? Who was the role model? Either somebody you knew or, you know, some, some myth that you, that you read about of, hey, this person was, was able to do it. Yeah, I, I don't think there was any sort of one person. There were people along my you know, way in the career, but there's no sort of one person that I'd say, hey, that, that, that was it. But, you know, the sort of folks that had come out of the working class that you could, you know, go and be successful. And, you know, and back in, in the time then, it was people like, you know, to some extent, people like Margaret Thatcher, you know, who not come from, not come from bad beginnings or, or, or uh, terribly working class, but, you know, it had gone on to be successful. Not the people who were expected to be yeah. where they ended up. Basically, yeah, basically. How did you find your way into technology? Uh, through sales. I mean, I basically, you know, came into the sort of sales role. Uh, and then that was selling technology, things like modems and things, and then telecommunications. So I was, you know, fortunate enough to get on in the early stages of that of that industry. But you had to, to really sell technology, you have to be able to speak to people who want to buy it. 
Um, was there something that prepared you for that type of conversation? Were you just curious about how things worked? I, I've always been curious about how things worked. Mm. And, you know, if I'm going to be talking to somebody about it, then I'll make sure that I'll learn everything I can about it and the context to it. So, you know, I didn't come up from an engineering background. Right. But, you know, you could see even then, you know, that this you thing was... college. I skipped college. Yeah, yeah, I really wanted to get out into the world and, uh, you know, was very anxious to get, to, to get out. Which you can spin as an advantage because you're doing practical things while some other people who, you know, would be your competition down the, the line are thinking big thoughts that might not be at all relevant. But then it, it's something that people are going to question you about at some stage in your career and say, well, what, what can this guy possibly know? Right? Yeah, no, I, I, think that's, I think that's fair. I think it was, you know, looking back, the right choice for me. I didn't think I had the degree of maturity to apply myself to, uh, you know, <laughs> to, to college at that time. Um, Many people who go probably don't either, but okay. <laughs> um, you know, and looking back, I think that was, it probably worked out, you know, better for me. Well, clearly. In that, in, that, in, in that regard. But, you know, when I got to my mid-30s and I'd gotten to, you know, learn a little more about business, I actually felt that I really wanted to go back. And, and, uh, and, and that's when I went back. I did actually do a college degree, you know, a master's uh, in my 30s. But, you know, I think that worked for me because I was a little more mature. I knew a little more about some of the, the, the context to it. So, you know, what I was super What position were you motivated. in career-wise? What was your job when you decided, I'm going to go get my MBA? Um, I'd, uh, I was running Asia Pacific and then uh, for a, a telecommunications company. I'd mm -hmm. been running them for a while. And so that was very much on my mind uh, to, go and, uh, to, to, to go and do that. So I'd, I think I was in my sort of mid-30s. Mid I'd be sort of what you'd call sort of mid-level manager. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, something like that. So I'd, I'd been, you know, reasonably successful, uh, but felt that, you know, much to your point, you know, some of it was just the curiosity of wanting to go do all of that. And I felt like I needed a framework because mm -hmm. people were talking about things, you know, in businesses, and I didn't really understand what they were talking about. Right. Could you still have gone on and been a CEO, long tenured CEO? not having gone for the MBA, or had you figured that you'd reached a point where you had gotten about as far as you could go without checking that off and getting that knowledge as well? I, I would say the latter. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say the latter. Um, you know, both self-perception and other people's perception as well. You know, because when I, your resume is there on the table with the other people who are in line <coughs> for the promotion, it was just going to be too hard to overcome that. Exactly. Yeah. And we always feel that, you know, uh, one always feels that one's going to get, you know, found out at some point, right? <laughs> I mean, we still have that, uh, that, uh, that, that mindset. And I think that helped actually give me confidence that, you know, I, I could figure out some of these structural things as well. So how long did it take you to, to get that level of education that you were going out for? I think I did, about, I think it was about three years. It was part-time. So I was working at the same time, which was, you know, tough. Mm. Um, so you got credit for time served in, in essence and where you got your MBA because you're going, hey, here's my high school diploma, I guess, and I want to get my MBA. Yeah, yeah. You know, how long is that going to take me? That's pretty quick. Part-time in three years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was about three years. Yeah, it was a good program. Um, then from there, uh, what are you able to do differently once you have had that experience? I think it's, it's, it's a confidence that, 
even if you're talking about disciplines that you're not familiar with, be it supply chain or services, but you've got a basic grounding in the metrics and, and what folks are talking about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what I think it gives you, you know, depending on the, the format of it, it gives you a broad-based uh, view around most dimensions of business. Mm -hmm. Doesn't make you a specialist in any of them or give you in-depth knowledge, but you know enough to understand what folks are talking about. And then you can get deep in it, you know, depending on the, uh, on, on the, on, on the circumstance. 30 years later, could um, the version of you today follow the same path? That's a, that's a, that's a great question. I, I, I don't see why not. Honestly, don't, don't, don't see why not. Um, and you'd like to think that society is at a point where you've got even more opportunities for those folks. You know, you'd, you'd like to think that. Do you have mid-level managers at Siena with the kind of resume that you had in your, say, early 30s? We have folks that have moved around and we put in different, you know, different experiences. I'd say we've got some folks who are, you know, going to do way better than I would have done in, in, in the mid-30s. Um, probably, probably not, because, you know, it's not, it's not the traditional, you know, route right now. You know, it's not the traditional thinking, you know, is, is if you're going to get into there, then, then you've you got to go to college. But... You know, when I look at talent and I think about talent in our business, I'm not thinking about whether they've got a degree or not. Right. I'm thinking about, you know, yes, the technical competence in whatever they're doing, but I'm really thinking about is what kind of person is this? How, how do, do they, you gauge that? How do they play as a team player? Yeah. You know, what are their characteristics? You know, because I think when you get to a certain level in, in any organization, in any competence, you know, there's an assumption that people are technically good at what you're either hiring them for or whatever function they are. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, then it's all about what? Then it's all about who they are, you know, and how do they fit in with the team. And it's, and it's not all about having the absolute best technical people in each of those areas. It's about creating a team. And yes, you need, it's great to have really smart, smart, great people who are good in their technical discipline. But what's equally important is to have an environment and a team that can be productive. How do you gauge that though? It, it, it's always seemed to me that companies either don't have the time or don't take the time to really figure out how this person performed in teams in the past. Yeah. Like, yes, you list references, but a lot of the time it seems like just list them to show that you have them right. and maybe a couple will get called, but do you really spend the time figuring out case study by case study, situation by situation, what position does this person play in a team? What do they do yeah. when they seem to be out of options? What do they do when, when the score is really turned against them? Uh, there's no magic to it, right? Um, and it's the much more difficult element of, of the judgment, right? Because you can tell whether somebody, you know, has technically done what they're supposed to have done. That's an easier way you can keep score on that. But, you know, the, the softer elements to it are the most important, you know, because, you know, uh, I remember hearing this from a, uh, a HR person that I worked with early on in my career, and I didn't really figure that, you know, I didn't really understand what she meant, but she, you know, she said, you hire people for what they know, but you fire them for who they are. <laughs> now, it was a bit of a brutal, uh, you know, uh, way of saying it, and it took me a while to figure it out, but, you know, it's actually so true. It is. So we spend a lot more time now when we interview people, talking about the softer side and trying to get to know the person. You know, with multiple people interviewing them and interviewing them in different circumstances, you know, not just in a formal, you know, more interview uh, classic, uh, you know, environment. And 
you know, we're much more mindful uh, about about that. Now, work with me here because this is a weird question. I want to take that you uh, hire somebody for what they know, you fire them for who they are, and apply it to companies. People join companies for what, what, and, and then leave them for what. what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it said that people, you know, leave the boss, but you know, join the. I don't know, but but wh why do people? join companies and then why do they leave and what does that say about the the sort of either culture that you have to build or the sort of relationship development relationship you need to have with an employee well you know i think sort of the, the world of work and employment and all the rest of it is is going to be changing dramatically and it is now and it will be over the next sort of 10 years and this notion that you know you go to work for a company and you're with them for 30 40 years you know which is the more traditional model you know is clearly you know in in in, in question mm. so therefore i think when you think about companies the role of of leaders in companies is to nurture talent and create the right environment for them that they can progress and have fun and enjoy what they're doing in your company but it's also very satisfying to see people come up do extremely well and go leave for other opportunities mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it is. We've had, you know, a number of individuals come through Siena and have gone off to, you know, be CEOs of, of companies. And that's yeah, they, the, they certainly didn't become CEO of Siena. <laughs> <laughs> You've been in that spot for. <laughs> Well, you know, that's, uh, that'll happen at some point. Soon. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it is, it is good to see these folks come up and, yeah. and do well. And that's, that's our sort of, you know, role because the, they'll contribute to Sienna and the ecosystem around it. How do you turn that into a plus? Because at a certain point, people figure out, even if they're coming in at a senior management level, this guy's probably not going anywhere. You know, he's been here for 10 plus years. <laughs> you know, he's, he's nowhere near 65. Um, do, do, you, do you then say, hey, look what we've been able to do with other people who have come through here and where they've ended up. Here's what you learn. How do you make it a welcoming environment when there's not that much possibility for at least vertical advancement? Well, well I think, you know, it's always an issue where you've got, you know, a long tenured uh, leadership in, 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 any, in any way, shape or form. Yeah. And I think you've just got to be super conscious of it and look for opportunities to create. Now we've been fortunate in the, when the company's growing and doing well, it's a much easier thing to do because you've always got you know, new opportunities looking for a home. And as long as people feel, I think, that they're being developed and they're getting new challenges that are appropriate for them, then you know, it's good to have a long tenured workforce. If you've, if you've got vibrancy, Mm -hmm. in that workforce, if that, if that makes sense. Now, you know, at the end of the day, as you, as you get to the top of any company, if there's fewer people moving around, then at some point, you know, folks say, hey, you know, I'm going to look elsewhere because I, I, I want to progress and, and go. But, you know, you've got to create the longest possible opportunity for, for, for that and manage it accordingly. Finally, what about your vibrancy? Um, it's been a long time to be in this job at this company, A, it's, it's phenomenal that uh, you've managed to, to lead the company for that period of time and keep the confidence of a board of directors and investors that that's not easy. But then how do you stay interested and engaged and excited with it? Is it outside passions, giving yourself time to do that? Is it just that the, the, the market is so dynamic that it's never boring? I don't know. Uh, 
how, how do you keep your head in the game? Uh, you know, yes, I think we're fortunate to live in a, in a very, you know, dynamic time and the industry that we're in is particularly dynamic. So, you know, that has been challenging at all different, different levels and that continues to be, to be fun and it's changed, you know. Um, but really, when I think about, you know, what motivates me is, 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 is people. Because businesses are all about people. And everybody says, you know, Sienna's got the best technology but and the rest of it. But everybody's got people. Haven't you ever been tempted to go to some other people? <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's creating the right environment with the right people. <laughs> That's what it's all about. You know, you look at really successful companies over a long period of time. And I would argue that it's about the environment that has been created with those people. And that they feel comfortable. They're having fun. They're, you know, feel like we're all learning. And so, you know, I look forward to come to work, you know, pretty much every day. Not absolutely every day, but right. most so days. So you're human. You're I'm human. Um, but, you know, what you get out of it is the energy from the people around you. You know, and that, that really is, 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 the, is the motivation, motivating piece to it. Mm. I mean, we're a technology company and we have the leading technology. The reason we have the leading technology, we have the best team. We have the best people and the way they interact with each other. You got kids. What's your advice to them about work? Turn up. <laughs> turn up <laughs> yeah find something you love and turn up for it and learn with purpose you know that's the most important thing and I think but finding what it is that you know motivates you is is probably the most difficult thing but once you've found that learn with purpose and turn up because there's you know there's no shortcuts and I think you know particularly today with the all-on environment I think there's a tendency for people to, you know, get rich quick, uh, you know, short, shortest possible route. Mm -hmm. Listen, I'm sure there are much, way smarter people than myself that are, that are capable of doing that. But, you know, you got to turn up and there's no shortcuts. All right. A guy who definitely keeps turning up. I appreciate you sitting down uh, for Fort Knox. Thanks, John. All right. It's been great. Thank you. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.